Hi, Monica Lopez here. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting independent media and making contact by becoming a donor. We know we're not the only podcast you listen to, but we certainly do hope we're among the group that's worth giving to. And your donation is tax deductible. So visit our website at radioproject.org. And now, here's the show. I'm Anita Johnson, and this week on Making Contact, the end of time, aging in America. In this episode, we'll take a close look at why people of color have less access to basic comfort care at the end of life. Recent studies show fewer minorities use hospice and palliative services compared to whites. Language barriers and cultural traditions often present big obstacles for Asians, Latinos, and other ethnic minorities, in addition to poverty and lack of medical literacy. These barriers can discourage people from seeking hospice care. In the first part of a two-part series, contributor Joanne Marr looks at the reasons for inequity in the end-of-life care for African Americans. Early in 2018, East Oakland resident Sharita Berry was in great pain and having severe difficulties breathing. She went to the hospital and was diagnosed with COPD, chronic lung disease caused by years of heavy smoking and drug abuse. There is no cure for COPD, and her condition is rapidly getting worse. This, take this twice a day, in the morning and at night. It opened up the airways. When Barry's doctors gave her the bad news, she needed guidance on what to do next. She could choose the comfort care provided by hospice, or she could undergo invasive surgery and be attached to a ventilator for the rest of her life. These aggressive treatments wouldn't cure the disease, just give her a little more time. But the doctors had a hard time communicating with Barry. Her daughter, Ashley Hunter, says there was a lack of trust. She woke up and she saw a dream. She told me there's a lot of different ones of gorillas. So the doctor was all gorillas, or they was like robotic. She was actually talking about doctors like doing something to her. She went through a lot of comas, so when she was in the coma, she was saying that she saw that. Barry's doctors finally brought in palliative care specialist Dr. Jessica Zitter to help out. Rather than dominate the conversation with medical jargon, Zitter let Barry talk for a long time. As she listened, it became clear what Barry wanted. Sounds like you you would not ever want to live on a breathing machine. She goes, oh, no. And, and then I said, well, what do, you, what do you think about being on a breathing machine again? She said, well, I'm afraid I wouldn't get off. I said, I'm afraid you wouldn't get off too. And she said, yeah, I don't want it. And that was it. There was the answer. Can you brush my hair for me, please? Oh, yeah, bro, you just don't know how good that feels. Sharita Berry went home and received hospice care. Her daughter, Ashley, was her part-time caregiver. Because my mama knows that I don't like seeing her in the hospital. She knows I'm more comfortable with her being with me or closer to me. So I think that's also part of the decision why she wanted to just be here and just, you know, around me when, she, when it happened. A few months after she returned home, Sharita Berry passed away peacefully, surrounded by her family. Most Americans surveyed say they'd prefer to die at home if possible. 
But the vast majority of Americans nearing the end of life spend their final days and weeks in hospitals and nursing homes. Dr. Jessica Zitter says the disparity is even greater for African Americans. In 2013, there was a, uh, a, a survey done by the Pew Center, and what was found was that African Americans do tend to die more often on uh, machinery, uh, in facilities, away from home, in pain, and than, than white patients. Cyanotic, speed up the drip, add dopamine, hyperventilate him. Hospital TV dramas like ER and Grey's Anatomy are watched by millions of Americans. UC San Francisco palliative care researcher Dr. Alex Smith says these programs can mislead viewers into believing that medicine can cure most problems, even terminal illness. And if you watch TV, as most people do, okay. then you think, hey, yeah, sure, if this happens to me, bring it's me back, in. restart my heart, go for it. Because it's likely to happen, right? Because it, it happens all the time on TV. This sliver of hope can lead people to make uninformed decisions without fully understanding the consequences. Nobody wants the CPR itself, the chest compressions, the shocks, the breathing tubes. They want to be able to, like, get back to their former selves, to function in society, to go home, to live at home, not to live in the ICU on machines for a few days before dying. Dr. Zitter says those heroic measures can immobilize frail patients, thus increasing the discomfort and suffering in their final days of life. If I sort of sit and think about it and I think about what that must feel like to be a dying person, unable to communicate, on my back, in a ICU or a ventilator facility with tubes surgically attached to my body with my arms tied down. To me personally, that, that is a fate that wouldn't, I, would never, I would never personally want. The alternative is to suspend life-prolonging treatments and choose hospice, which focuses on comfort pain management, and quality of life. But studies show that far fewer African Americans enroll in hospice compared to whites. And the consequences can be devastating for the terminally ill. We've got food deserts. We've also got pharmacy deserts. And this is a serious problem. Without the comfort care provided by hospice, African Americans have less access to pain medication, especially if they live in low-income neighborhoods. You know, if they're under the care of hospice, well, the hospice will bring that medication to that neighborhood. But if you have to go and actually refill a prescription, it can be a real problem for people who may not have a car and who can't figure out how to get to a pharmacy somewhere else. Hospice is available to most people with terminal illness. But studies have found that many African Americans will instead opt for life-prolonging treatments and surgery. Many people associate hospice with hastening death or giving up hope approaching end of life, then why should I trust that you're going to do the right thing for me? Give me everything. Reverend Cynthia Carter Periliot is a minister at the Allen Temple Baptist Church in East Oakland. Statistics will, ch will tell you that in communities of color, particularly the African-American community, they always say, give me everything, you know, all the treatment that there is, because typically we don't get the treatment we need. If you put a doctor-patient relationship particularly between a, a white doctor and an African-American patient, into the context of our nation's history, you can understand so easily why that kind of an interaction of a white doctor coming in and saying, hey, 
here's the reality of the medical situation, might actually make an African-American patient withdraw, retrench, lose trust, feel that once again they're being left behind by a system that has left them behind so many times. Doing everything to stay alive is part of African-American culture that can be traced back to the days of slavery. The country's long history of racism and poverty included unequal access to medical care. Historic wrongs such as the Tuskegee syphilis experiments of the 1930s have only served to reinforce African-American mistrust of the medical system. The U.S. government had ultimately a cure for syphilis, but they did not provide that cure to these African-American men. Unfortunately, most of them died. It was a senseless death. It did not have to happen. And frankly, the um, powers that be, particularly the government, did nothing about that. Periliat had her own positive experience with hospice many years ago when her father died of cancer. She said the staff took good care of him. They were kind, caring, and compassionate. But she noticed that very few African-Americans enrolled in hospice. Most of them knew little about it, and the medical staff was all white. Why don't we see more health professionals that are people of color, Asian, Latinos, African-American? Where are we in this mix? Yes, praise God. There they are. Come on, let's show them some love, church. Amen. We're glad to see you. And the light came on and immediately I saw it. This, this is ministry. This is ministry at the heart of it all. This is ministry. Jesus in me loves the Jesus in you. Periliot realized that houses of worship needed to become more active in end-of-life care to help overcome the historical mistrust of the medical system. 70% of African Americans are religious and churches are highly respected institutions. The faith community, frankly, uh, I think is one of the last uh, bastions of resource out there for communities where there is some level still of trust. Trust is huge on this issue of advancing illness and aging and end of life. You really need to know that you can get trusted information from trusted individuals that have no motives other than they want the best for you. Lift him up, lift him up. In partnership with five churches, Periliot started the Alameda County Care Alliance, a faith-based nonprofit providing critical support for people with advanced illness and their caregivers. It's considered the nation's first community faith health partnership of its kind. Ministers and faith leaders are trained to help their congregants prepare for the end of life. At the heart of the ACCA's program is its navigation system. Community care navigators are trained to provide support and connect participants with needed resources such as transportation, meals, medical services, and hospice care. Hi, Mother Martin. How are you doing? How you doing? I'm fine. All right. Thanks for allowing me to come by today. Mm -hmm. How you feeling? I'm doing pretty good so good. far. 
Alexis Owens is a navigator with the ACCA. She's checking up on 98-year-old Hannah Martin, who lives in Oakland. Since the death of her husband, Martin has suffered from grief, loneliness, high blood pressure, and hypertension. And now she's fallen behind on her bills, which causes added stress. I know we scheduled, I think, at least two payment arrangements mm-hmm. with PG&E. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been able to we'll kind of follow those? Yeah, we've been following that. So we Martin and Owens attend the same church. What a blessing it is, God. What a blessing it is that you've allowed me to meet Mother Martin. And we've been able to build a relationship, oh God. I just love Elisa because she's such a nice person. Very, very helpful, very helpful, yes. She's somebody you can talk to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Each visit ends with a prayer. As she nears the end of her life, Martin knows she can turn to Owens and the ACCA for help. They will connect her with hospice, comfort care, or whatever medical services she wants. Every year, the Alameda County Care Alliance hosts a one-voice mass choir with hundreds of people from its church partners. This event celebrates the work of caregivers and brings together ministers, faith leaders, and volunteers. We've got our first funding in 2014. Um, in less than 12 months, we had 550 people. So that's a lot of folks having their needs met through this program. Year two, our numbers practically doubled. Uh, we're well over, you know, 2,500, close to 3,000 plus folks now in our third year. So this is just our third year. There's no lack of need, I promise you. CCA hopes to expand throughout the Bay Area and connect with Latinos and Asians someday. Major cities such as Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York have expressed interest in replicating the ACCA's navigator system. If the model spreads nationwide, it could go a long way in helping reduce racial disparities in end-of-life care. You're listening to The End of Time, Aging in America, on Making Contact. In the last segment, contributor Joanne Marr reported on the racial disparities in the end-of-life care and how mistrust keeps many African-Americans away from hospice. In part two of today's program, we look at cultural traditions and language barriers that prevent access to basic comfort care at the end of life for Asians and Latinos. Now back to The End of Time, Aging in America, on Making Contact. Terry Daniel is a grief counselor, meeting with a group of Chinese seniors at a San Francisco housing community. She's here to learn about their customs and traditions relating to the end of life. And so we're going to talk about death here, and I hope that's okay with everybody. The women share stories about visits to cemeteries and setting up altars for their ancestors. They've spent a lot of time and thought honoring their deceased relatives, but not much time making plans for their own deaths. So I would ask how many of you have told your 
children or social workers or whoever what you wish for your end of life. Only six people out of 25 raised their hands. The Senior Center has held many workshops on preparing for the end of life and completing advanced directives, a legal document that specifies their wishes and preferences for medical treatment. But very few of their residents have followed through and most have not had conversations with their children. She said, my children actually even more fearful than us. Yes, and then she started yes. laughing. That is true. That <laughs> is because for the children, they are afraid of the pain of loss. Studies show that fewer ethnic minorities use hospice services compared to whites. That means they have less access to the comfort care and pain management hospice can provide to help ease the discomfort and suffering that often accompanies dying. Making sure that we talk with people and prepare people in advance for these serious illness, that's, that's what we're trying to promote nationwide, particularly as we're becoming a more diverse society. Dr. Alex Smith is among the many concerned palliative care specialists in the Bay Area seeking to improve care at the end of life. More importantly, is understanding what the goals and the values are. What type of life is worth living? What kind of trade-offs are they willing to make in order to have that type of life? You know, what, what are they afraid of? What, and what kind of quality of life is acceptable to them, right? Those are the kind of conversations that are very important and help family members prepare for that in-the-moment decision-making. Death is not something we really talked about until it happened, you know, and I guess it's kind of hard to talk about these things. Luis Hernandez is a graduate student at UC Berkeley. His mother died suddenly of liver cancer a few years ago, right when the semester had just started. She had pains for quite some time. She was very hesitant to go to the doctors. My mom was always very scared of doctors and never wanting to go. No matter how many times me and my brother, like, told her, go, like, you need to go. It's important to go. Like, she's like, I'm scared they'll find something. I'm like, well, that's the point of doctors. That's the point of, like, going to a doctor. That's the point of, you know, seeking the medical help. But she waited too long. By the time she finally saw the doctor, she was diagnosed with stage 4 liver cancer. After emergency surgery, she got sicker and later died in the hospital. Because events moved so quickly... There was no time for Hernandez and his brother to talk with their mother and discuss hospice or alternatives to the aggressive medical interventions she received. That conversation should have taken place long ago. You know, we're not rich white people, right? So, like, we're living in the projects of Brooklyn, New York. What time does she have when she has to work nine to six o'clock job, you know? Like, and then she comes back and then she has to take care of all of us. Like... It's not easy to plan that. And even on the weekends, too, she's working. She's taking care of the house. She's maintaining everything. Like, you know, it's it, where, where do you find time to plan all that out? Poverty is just one of many potential challenges. Federal agents raided a home yesterday, housing dozens of smuggled, undocumented immigrants. For those without legal status, Dr. Smith says fear of deportation can lead to delays in seeking medical help or planning for the end of life. I'm seriously concerned that the overall direction our country has taken, building the border wall, 
forced separation of families will have consequences, and in particular, at the end of life, when people are seriously ill and need support from others. Because it takes very little to prevent accessing services, you know, until it's too late, until you're really suffering, until you're dying, until you're hospitalized in the intensive care unit. Cultural beliefs, values, and religion can also be barriers to good end-of-life care. In many Asian and Latino cultures, openly discussing death is taboo. The Chinese consider it bad luck. I would say in my family that's very true. We never talk about death. We don't talk about anyone being sick. We don't, we don't mention it at all. Julie Tai's family comes from Vietnam. Her father's side of the family is ethnic Chinese. Both of her parents came to the U.S. after the war, but the rest of the family remained in Vietnam. In our own family, we don't talk about death in definitive terms, or um, we don't talk about it at all because we just love our family members so much that we talk about them as though they're still alive. Tai's family in Vietnam did not have any conversations with her 85-year-old grandfather as he was nearing death. Instead, Tai's aunt and her daughter were his medical proxies. I think everyone just assumed that they would be in charge of his care, that they would do what they felt was right for him, but it was never talked about. And that's why his needs were not met at the end of life, unfortunately. In many Asian and Latino cultures, this is the traditional way. End-of-life decisions are made by family members, without including the person who's ill. Dr. Smith says he's seen it many times. Family may want to shield their loved one, and I've dealt with this clinically. You know, don't tell mother that she has cancer or that she's in hospice. Smith has done extensive research on racial and ethnic disparities in end-of-life care. It's going to make her depressed. She's going to dwell on it. She can't handle it psychologically. But what we have to do, and our responsibility as providers, is talk to the loved one to see what their preference is, the person who's living with the serious illness. But in the case of Ty's grandfather, his doctors never spoke directly with him. On the telephone, he told Ty and her mother he wanted a natural death and did not want to be resuscitated. Smith says family members often demand that everything be done to keep the patient alive. Loyalty and respect. This is honoring your obligation to your parents to keep them alive as long as possible. That can include invasive surgery, chemotherapy, and other aggressive and unpleasant life-sustaining treatments. Some people may say, look, uh, I don't want to have this aggressive treatment toward the end of my life. And I know my son will demand it. And I respect that. That's his role. And, and you should respect that too. So even though I don't want that personally for myself, that's my son's job. And so you should listen to him. When Ty's grandfather was taken to the hospital for the last time, her aunt asked the doctors to do everything to keep him alive. But Ty says this caused him great pain and discomfort. He was very upset. He was crying. He was pulling the IVs out. He was kind of spitting up the food. He just didn't want anything that they were giving him. He was caused more pain um, 
by them imposing these heroic measures on him as opposed to just letting him go, which is what he would have wanted. Despite the attempts to save his life, Ty's grandfather went into cardiac arrest, and he died 24 hours later. Trained medical professionals and social workers can make a critical difference in reaching out to ethnic patients and helping them prepare for the end of life. Professional translators are needed to overcome cultural and language barriers and help facilitate conversations. But educational outreach and good communication also require special training in cultural humility, an awareness of the patient's values and traditions, and a willingness to listen closely to the patient. You have to let the family lead instead of us coming in and saying, well, we know all about this. We'll, we'll be right over. We'll tell you what to do. <laughs> Karen McCabe is a social worker with Hospice of Santa Cruz County. She assists dying Latino patients and their families. McCabe says many Latinos mistakenly equate hospice with an asylum for the mentally ill or places that hasten death. McCabe sits down with a family and describes how hospice can help them. I often just sort of explain that we're going to be bringing nurses into your home and we're going to be sending the medicines to your house and we need somebody from your family to be in charge of the care and we're going to teach them what to do and um, we're going to sort of set up your house like this hospital and do the best we can at your house. One place that can help low-income frail elders is Unlock Senior Health Services. A mí me gusta mucho ser participante de Unlock. The majority of Onlock seniors are low-income Chinese and Latinos living in three Bay Area counties. Its comprehensive services include home visits and clinical care, meal deliveries, transportation, and adult daycare. Dr. Alana Spall is a primary care physician at Onlock in San Francisco. Spall says conversing with participants can often be challenging, especially if cultural norms prohibit patient autonomy and discussing death. Even though it's taboo, and I, I usually say I'm your doctor and this is my job and I need to know what you want or what you don't want, and I also bring up that if we don't discuss this now, it'll put their family in a harder place later on. And that often helps because they see their family, you know, struggling to make a decision in the future and they don't want to be a burden. And so I, I remind them that actually telling their preferences to me is a gift that they are giving their family members. Thanks to the efforts of Spall and other staff members, Almost all of Onlock's participants have completed advanced directives. Onlock currently serves over 1,500 frail elders and at the end of life provides seniors with comfort care similar to hospice. Since its founding in 1971, Onlock's innovative program has been replicated in 30 states. The goal is helping seniors age in place and live independent, active lives until the end. 
À, mẹ thấy giống như mẹ muốn nói chuyện gì lúc mẹ chết mẹ muốn giống như ông Julie Tai spent time at Unlock for a student research project and was impressed with its results. Following the death of her grandfather, she graduated from medical school. She's now a doctor specializing in geriatrics and is trained to help seniors plan for the end of their lives. I think I really just wanted to be a champion for the vulnerable population because I think about my grandfather and how much he meant to me and I think that made me want to care for older people even more. Tai is hoping her parents will make their own plans for the end of life. She's asking her mother how she wants to die. Yeah, she's pretty comfortable talking about it. She goes she goes just let me go. <laughs> By having open, honest conversations, Tai hopes to honor her parents and her patients' wishes. In particular, she wants to reach out to patients bound by culture who can't talk openly about death. Efforts like Thai's could have a big impact someday on reducing racial disparities in end-of-life care. For Making Contact, I'm Joanne Marr. You've been listening to The End of Time, Aging in America on Making Contact. This series on racial disparities and the end-of-life care was originally broadcast on KLW and was produced by Joanne Marr in collaboration with USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, 2018 California Fellowship. For the rest of the Making Contact team, I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.